I'm Paul DeGarabedian with my Many Screens Big Picture Podcast. And today I'm thrilled to have on the show Ryan Fonder, an entertainment business reporter with the Los Angeles Times Company Town team. Ryan, you're here to talk about a new initiative, a new, a new newsletter, if you will, called The Wide Shot. Let's talk about that first and foremost. And then we have a lot of other stuff in the news to talk about, which is apropos to this newsletter. So Ryan, welcome. Thank you, Paul. It's good to see you. It's been two years almost since we last, uh, I think, saw each other in person in Vegas at the uh, CinemaCon. CinemaCon. So I'm sure we saw each other since then, but like... It's it's it doesn't it usually happens in April, March, May sometimes. That's right. That's that right. Ballpark, right. And I've grown a massive gray beard since we met. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's going good. I think it's a trend that'll you know persist for a little while, like many other things that are happening during this time. Well, tell me about the wide shot. I think there's no time better for something like this, given the nature of the business. So let's hear a little bit about it. Well. Obviously, I completely agree with you that this is the perfect uh, (laughs) time to be launching something like this. But uh, in all seriousness, like when we were kind of in the middle of the pandemic and everyone stuck at home, we basically found or I found that I was having to chase down stories and covering more things going on in the industry than ever and there was just so much news, and I thought that this could be a good way for us to just consolidate some of our coverage and pull, be able to pull back a little bit and give people both that kind of wide view of what it all means and where things are going, and also drill down on some of the specific stuff that we don't necessarily get to go too deep into the weeds on when we're doing a you know 700 to 800 word newspaper article so something like this like the wide shot the newsletter we really have an opportunity to expand on our coverage this isn't just like we're we're not just dumping links we're not just putting the headlines into the aggregation engine we're actually trying to add value bring insights bring analysis help people do their jobs by and go straight to them with just kind of what we're thinking about in the industry right now and i would think by having an something that's emailed and it comes out every tuesday correct that's right and so to get those insights analysis exclusive news i think for so many people in, in this industry right now You almost need someone to curate for you all this news, whether it's breaking news or insights, or I've even noticed you have some really amazing uh, infographics and charts in here that kind of makes it where if you're super busy, if you're an executive or an analyst or even a consumer, if you look at this, you can look at that chart and go, wait, I I see something interesting here. I want to go deeper. So how important are the graphical elements to this? Uh, is this going to be something that's in every uh, news every week, every newsletter, or is it something when it's appropriate to include a graphic or some sort of chart? These are re- this latest one with most in demand global global TV series is really cool. Yeah, that's something that we got from uh, Parrot Analytics, and they measure streaming demand online, you know, using their own methodology. And their information is really interesting because. When you look at the streaming world right now, I'm sure you've seen this, like it's almost impossible to find reliable 
data. And even if you have that data, how do you know how it compares on the other services and all that? So, I mean, it's really just measuring popularity. So I thought that was pretty interesting to include. I just think that the way people consume information right now, you know, these graphics are so helpful because they are visual. They do help break up the text when you're reading through. That's how I consume a lot of my information. Now, like I subscribe to a bunch of newsletters. They're fun to read. They have a voice. They have analysis. And they have those little breakout charts yeah. and things like that. Picture is worth a thousand words, right? I just find myself really inspired by you know, folks like Matt Levine at Bloomberg, who writes that money stuff, and you know, people like Sammy Roth on our paper, who writes about climate change in a newsletter format. A lot of people are really taking to the form and kind of making newsletters the new podcasts, and this has kind of been going on for you know, more than a year with the Substack explosion. Ryan, tell me about the team that is putting together the wide shot. I know you're the curator, you're the main writer, but I know you have a team working on this. Right, exactly. Well, you know, the Times has been extraordinarily supportive of this project. It is definitely something that I write almost uh, exclusively. But you know, we've got Richard Barrier, who's my editor, has also been extremely supportive just in and edits the thing every week which is uh definitely a lot of work and then so we also have uh, an illustrator whose name is nicole boss who helps make the art and the graphics and makes it look cool in your inbox so you know i just want to give credit where it's due it looks great i mean it really it, you That's have to great. really get people excited when that when something comes into that that inbox how do you parse out the stories that you want to include? I mean, is there a hierarchical thing where you look at this story, another story? Do you How do you curate what goes in the newsletter? Will the newsletter generally be of a specific size in terms of how many words or how much content? Or is kind of the sky's the limit, whatever the week of news dictates, you can expand or contract the amount of information that's in the newsletter? Yeah, I try to you know, keep it pretty well curated. And I mean, a lot of people, including myself, have a tendency to write kind of long. So it's a little bit of self-editing. Uh, <laughs> and this is a good way to kind of put a check on that uh, instinct and try to get more information across as succinctly and as entertainingly as possible. But I think, you know, you're spot on when you're asking about you know, how do we organize? Is Because there's, there's so much going on in the week, right? So... I feel like the top section will always be something a little bit more big picture or teeing off on a on a major news story, sort of like a power lunch conversation kind of thing that people are talking about, even though we're not doing lunches anymore. And then, you know, other sections, we have a specific thing that I do every week, which is highlight a specific number that really stuck out to me, either from an analyst report or earnings or, or stock price or something, and really try to drill down into that and highlight and say what it means about the business. Oh, yeah. Ryan, is that the number of the week? Yeah, it's the number section? of the week. I love that. Yeah, it's a fun way to break up the flow a little bit and also bring in some stories that I normally wouldn't cover, like like Square buying uh, Jay-Z's streaming app title, you know, $297 million, which just, that, that really kind of just stuck out to me. And I think you'd agree that there is nothing really off limits when it comes to entertainment in terms of what could be covered. Even if something is sort of outside the purview of, let's say, if you want to be in the lane of movies and TV, 
almost everything now is interconnected, whether it be music with Jay-Z, whoever the artist might be. I think David Crosby's been in the news uh, in one of these stories. So I think it's just really interesting that you're able to bring this all together. And I don't think there are any guardrails in terms of where you have to stay in your lane because this is all now big screen, small screen, music, advertising, whatever the world you're living in, it's somehow connected to some other silo of entertainment or even politics. It could be anything. It just seems like we're all in social media. It's all interconnected. So I think it's really uh, interesting that you're covering all these different aspects. Yeah, I love it. And I love being able to you know, highlight you know, stuff that I enjoy from the work my colleagues are doing, like uh, Randall's pieces for the music part of the section are always really fascinating to me. It's almost an excuse for me to make my own reading list. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, I think it's really cool. Offline, we were talking a little bit about how this may be the most dynamic time in the entertainment industry in specific and in just the world of business in general, given the accelerated dynamics that the COVID-19 pandemic brought to bear on every industry. But in the entertainment side, it's really shifted things. There's been a, you know, a tectonic shift in the way we view the world, the way we view content, streaming, big screen, small screen, exhibition, distribution, everything. How are you attacking that in terms of not only just the wide shot newsletter, but just in terms of your own reporting? It just seems overwhelming today. We count on you, the journalist, to kind of keep us all informed on that. But man, what a daunting, but really, I think, exciting world to be in, despite the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic has been incredibly tragic and has a massive human toll. But in terms of the business side, it's really, there's just so much to discuss and think about and look forward to in the future. There's so much to cover. And there's so many things that we want to cover and that we find super fascinating, but not necessarily. Um, as an example, we recently did an item on you know how Hollywood is dealing with China during the pandemic and what's going on in China where local product, not Hollywood product, is really dominating the space at a time when Hollywood has been holding back all its releases. And China's been, you know, at the behest of the government, ramping up its uh, output of blockbusters and patriotic movies that are doing really, really well. And sort of what does that mean for the U.S. studios that see this as an incredibly important market still? And, you know, if you wait to write that story for the couple weeks that it might take or three weeks that it might take to actually report it out to the degree where you could make it into a A1 story for the paper, which we have done quite a bit of that coverage. But still, I mean, in that amount of time, I've always found that the story can shift. It doesn't <laughs> age well. Like by the time that story hits, it's already irrelevant. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, you know, with the pandemic too. And, and I think this was always true that news was breaking all the time and that a story written today could need an addendum tomorrow. But I feel like in this world right now, that it really is moment by moment, you could have to go back and keep, I would imagine there's more updating and editing or just adding facts and figures or even just changes in the attitude of the industry in real time. It's got to be just, I mean, exciting again, but 
that's a lot to keep up with. Yeah, there's, there's two good examples of that recently. One is the explosion in um, people investing in SPACs, which you know, if you don't know, are these uh, special purpose acquisition companies that are basically designed to you know, be shell companies that go public, raise a bunch of money, and then find other companies, uh, a private company to back into, thereby sort of taking that private company public and you're seeing a lot of you know, former Hollywood executives get in this market attaching their names to these shell companies you're seeing like uh, you know the musician Ciara Colin Kaepernick and Serena Williams on the boards of these companies and this is something that's just exploded just in the last month and you know basically right after I, I posted an item on this within a couple of weeks you started to see a dip in that market so it's kind of like okay well this is, this is something that we're going to return to over and over again and then you know just in terms of your world in terms of you know the, the box office and consumer sentiment you know a couple of weeks ago it felt like people were really things started to shift in terms of people's desire and willingness to consider, you know, going to theaters, and you know that happened with New York starting to reopen, and there was a lot of kind of uh, optimism about pent up demand, and then when Raya opened in theaters, and people started to look at that one movie on one weekend and say, okay, well maybe things aren't going to come back as fast as as we think. And Disney still kept you know, Black Widow on its May 7th date. But like, who knows at this point? It's so true that, you know, you're right. Because week by week, it's like uh, it's an emotional roller coaster, for lack of a better way to put it. And that's why I'm always loath to make any big pronouncements about the industry. Because in this dynamic world, ever changing, what you say today could be obsolete or proven to be untrue tomorrow, but maybe in in a way it's good that we know that everybody understands why these changes are happening. So in other words, if you're correct when you wrote something and it changes in a day or two, I don't think anyone's going to beat you up over that anymore. I think you got to understand that no matter who you are, what industry you're in or what you're writing about, that the ever-changing dynamics dictate almost that you better keep up with this. And that's why I think the wide shot is so cool because you almost... You can't just set it and forget it, walk away and figure that this piece of news is going to be carved in stone. But really, it's more like everything should be written with a pencil, not a pen, because it's constantly changing. That's exactly right. And it also gives us an opportunity to look at things that like Bob Chapek and all the heads of the studios or the media companies that own the studios were saying at this Morgan Stanley conference about all of the long-term changes that they're expecting to see in movie-going behavior. So, you know, now it's not just, you know, it's not just analysts like, you know, Rich Greenfield and people like that predicting that these things are going to happen. It's actually the people in charge of these companies that have skin in the game that are trying to adjust to that. That's really interesting. I want to go back real quick to what you were saying about China, you know, in our Comscore data, For the first time in 2020, China was the biggest movie market in the world. Now, we all know why that was. I think that's been expected for years. I know that others have spoken to that in the past, that someday China would be the biggest movie market with North America coming in second. That was accelerated and did happen in 2020. We all know why. But that is very interesting, I think, in terms of other movie markets being a a North Star, in a sense, like showing the way that movie theaters can 
and will come back. But like you said, one week you're optimistic, or we, you're not you, but the royal we are optimistic, and then down the road that might change. Although I do think as every city opens, that's going to encourage studios to stay on dates. We've noticed a lot of release date changes recently, but they're moving incrementally, not by a year. So maybe maybe that's a good sign. Yeah, like Universal moving fast by a month instead of six months and like that seems like a good sign and then other studios are actually moving up some releases to that's right be even sooner than they would have been which you know that seems like a positive also i do wonder looking at china i did a post uh talking with uh, rich gelfond at imax and he was pretty bullish looking at china and saying you know if you just open movies and open theaters like there is this pent-up demand to get out there and it's going to be like the roaring 20s at the same time china hasn't spent a whole year in total lockdown just getting movies on demand whereas we kind of have well with with some exceptions you know we've a lot of executives seem to think that we're getting accustomed after a year of all this to getting films a lot sooner now does that mean someone like Disney is going to start doing day and date and just totally cut the legs off exhibition? Probably not. But it might mean that you have a long-term 45-day theatrical window or a 30-day theatrical window rather than the you know, 75 to 90 days that you typically saw before COVID. You make a fantastic point, Ryan, because not every market is the same. Not every country is the same. And like you said, being on lockdown and not having a lot of streaming options, depending on where you live, may make the dynamics of how a consumer feels coming out of the pandemic, how they want to consume that entertainment. Although we've seen even when, you know, when Tom and Jerry opened 14.1 million available also on HBO Max, that was a really good number. And so I think that that is encouraging. Uh, speaking of the windows, I think the 90 day window, I don't I think it's all about dynamic windows now. Whether that means day and date, which I think day and date can work now for some of the smaller titles and for Warner Brothers titles in 2021, that's their strategy. But I think in 2022 and beyond, the hybrid model with a theatrical first, I think is really going to come back. Maybe it's a good thing that if it's certain milestones, if a movie isn't bringing in the dollars or the people to the theater that moves something else onto that big screen, move that big screen content to the small screen. Maybe that's ultimately better for the overall business exhibition and distribution. Yeah. It does seem like there used to be this unified theory of releasing movies where every studio kind of did it the same way. And now you have, I mean, just think about it, like a couple of years ago, we had six studios and one way of releasing movies in theaters basically. Right. Now we have fewer studios, and each one has its own way of putting things out. I mean, Paramount Plus is going to have movies 45 days after releasing in theaters with uh, Quiet Place 2 and Mission Impossible 7. I don't think we have any idea what Sony is doing, but uh, you know, <laughs> going back to Warner and HBO Max, they're doing day and date. Disney has three different ways that it can release movies now with Disney Plus in theaters, so... I don't know. I just think this total split of, you know, it's it's like an amoeba splitting into six different parts. 
it's just really fascinating. And each one kind of exposes the uh, corporate priorities of the parent company in its own way. Well, that's well said. It really is about that, right? So if you have a corporate ecosystem where you have literally a streaming service at your disposal anytime, that's one model. That's one way of certain studios have that. Others have to go to other platforms to get their movies released streaming. And there is no one size fits all uniform way of doing things. I I think you're absolutely right. And it used to kind of be that way. But now I think that I don't think we're ever going back to a one size fits all model, which will make it even more important to have that information. Because if you don't, you can be, and I think consumers are getting confused. Maybe that'll, when people are able to go back to the theaters and see the in-theater marketing and trailers where it says the release date and the release date's going to hold. But right now you could ask five different consumers. They might think Bond is being released in April or, you know, or was it October or was it November? And that's not just for Bond. It's for all these movies. It's really difficult, I think, to keep up with as a consumer. All the release date changes and just the moving around added to that is how much content is there available on what content and how much is available on each streaming service. I mean, as a consumer today, I think we need your information more than ever, just in general, to kind of keep tabs on the industry and what's going on. But it just seems like there's so many layers, so many moving parts. How do we deal with that? We need journalists to help us with that, I think. Yeah, now you've got a bunch of apps that are out there. Right, that kind of aggregate and can tell you, just like act as the almost TV guide to the crazy array of services we have. Because, I mean, a lot of people are expecting we're going to eventually get to the point where we're all subscribing to like five or six services each and not just the people who are like paid to do it in the industry, like me. So, how do you keep track of all that? It's it's a pretty interesting question. And I think there's a financial aspect too. We have to remember a lot of people have been hard hit by the pandemic financially and then sometimes have to make a decision, make some tough choices. Like I think there's more choice than ever, but it also leads to people having to sometimes decide where to allocate their personal resources towards all this. What do you think about obviously the type of content that's available or a specific filmmaker What do you think drives people to a specific streaming service? Is it the brand of the streaming service? Is it, you know, I love Disney content, so I'm going to, I want Disney plus, or is it when that one filmmaker that you love puts everything on one streaming service or there's archival or catalog titles that are like exactly what you love? How do you decide this? I guess I'm asking more on a personal level, but also from a business perspective, what is that daunting reality of having an almost unlimited array of content? How do you deal with that? Yeah. I mean, I I feel like most people probably gravitate to whatever service has the show that people are talking about most right now. I mean, right now it's... for the last couple of weeks, it was WandaVision. So for a lot of people, that was probably a pretty good driving force to get people who are not children to subscribe to Disney+. Plus. Uh, before that, it was Queen's Gambit or Tiger King or whatever. It's just like if, if something is, if you have something that's good and zeitgeisty, that's enough for a lot of people probably. So it's more content in your estimation. I think so. Like content and cost and all that, like it's 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 important. You know, people will subscribe to Apple TV Plus to watch Ted Lasso, but they'll also stick around if they have a year of it free with like a T-Mobile subscription or something like that. 
Well, I think it's that emotional connection to content that that really is the thing that makes people sign up. Generally, we talk about how these services, you can opt in month at a time, you can pay for a year. But most people, once they get on that auto pay, I feel like they never opt out or they forget. Yeah. No, it's really easy to do it. But I think probably not that many people think about it that hard from month to month. So that is the challenge. I mean, we've all been talking about the issue of churn for a while, which is not a new concept in business at all. But when you have a world where it's so easy just to go to that Apple store page and in your app subscription uh, button and just flip that switch, you know, that it's going to, it's going to be an issue for some more than others, you know, for Netflix, they seem to be managing it pretty well by just, jamming so much content on the site all the time 70 movies in 2021 i mean that's just wild and then you know disney plus seems like they're gonna be up in that range too but like when you get to the worlds of like paramount plus and discovery plus what's going to be the sweet spot for them it's kind of my one of my questions it's really the wild west in a sense and and for consumers it's just it's a great time to be a consumer because you have an almost unlimited array of content, but also to be able to go out of the house and go to movie theaters, that's something that's on the horizon again. And I think that actually, I, I feel like the more people enjoy content at home, then they want to go out and see movies in a theater as well. If you're a consumer of content, you love movies, you're going to want to go out. Just like if you're a music lover, you can digitally download music all day long. But when concerts come back, you know, a lot of people are going to be first in line wanting to do that, those very humanistic communal experiences, but it's going to take some time. And the pandemic's going to have a long tail, I think, in terms of how people deal with outdoor activities and communal activities in general. Yeah. And some communal activities are you know, different from others when you're talking about the in-person experience, right? Like I just read this, there was this really great piece in the New York Times by their uh, comedy critic and just talking about how like live stand-up comedy, for example, is just, you cannot re- <laughs> replicate it over Zoom. It's just, I mean, there's a couple of people who can do, and I've actually been in a couple of these shows where the comic will do crowd work with the Zoom rooms and kind of go back and forth and make fun of people and interact. But that is very rare that people are able to pull that off. You know, that's interesting. I didn't really, I've never thought about that because how do you heckle somebody in a Zoom? I could just hit mute on you. <laughs> I mean, well, a- you want to, I think you probably want to participate if not be a total buzzkill. Right. He doesn't want to get to razz a little bit. I mean, uh-huh. That's part of the fun of going to a comic who does a lot of crowd work. It's just kind of that anxiety of getting called on. But now you've made my point. All the entertainment interrelates somehow. Even stand-up comedy in the physical realm relates to everything that's going on in entertainment in general because every type of entertainment, it seems, has been impacted by the pandemic. But we're all certainly looking forward to getting back to a a more quote-unquote normal world where we can get out there and do things in the physical realm. But we're going to wrap up here in in a couple of minutes. I'm speaking with Ryan Fonder entertainment business reporter with the Los Angeles Times talking about his new newsletter, The Wide Shot. And I want to ask you a very simple question. Why Tuesday? I think I know, but The Wide Shot is released every Tuesday. 
is Monday a day? I think just for anybody listening who doesn't know the business, and even I would love to know, how do you calculate what is the best day to do anything in terms of putting out stories or a newsletter like the, the Wide Shot? How do you, how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I had in mind was that we wanted to be something that was not just a wrap up of what had happened during the prior week, but also could look forward a little bit and spin stories forward. Uh, at the same time, you know, Mondays, I feel like are kind of a catch up day for a lot of people in the industry. And if you if there's something in your inbox on 6am on a Monday morning, you might see it, you might click on it, but you've got a lot to deal with. You got a lot of people uh, trying to get your attention. So, you know, just for competitive reasons, and then also just strategically, it, it, it felt like it felt like the right day. I agree. I think Monday people are so distracted, especially in the morning. There's like, you know, so much noise from the weekend and everything. So I think that's great. But uh, how do we sign up for the wide shot and where can we find you, Ryan? Oh, I'm very easy to find. I, I, my name is very Googleable because my last name is pretty uh, rare and unusual. So I'm on Twitter at rfonder. Find me there. And then the newsletter sign-up page is just latimes.com slash wide shot. Or I believe you can also go to latimes.com slash newsletters where you can check out just like the whole suite of, uh, of newsletter products because we have stuff on you know, coronavirus today, coronavirus updates, and boiling point, which is the climate change one, and essential arts and all that good stuff. I love it. I think you, Ryan, you've, you've really tapped into something here. I think never has there been a time where we've needed something like this more, but specifically from the Los Angeles times and you, Ryan, who I know forever, your reporting is incredible. You go really in depth. You have an incredible amount of experience. I get my copy every Tuesday now via email and I encourage everyone to sign up for the wide shot, uh, Los Angeles times, Ryan Fonder, Thank you so much for being on Many Screens Big Picture. I look forward to talking with you more in the future. Thank you. Yeah, we can do a real lunch in person at some point, hopefully. Let's do it. Thanks, Paul. This is great. Mm-hmm.